I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So today, one of the marquee examples of incumbent um, does M&A, you know, disrupts its business, goes after Amazon, big bad monopoly, has now been very successful, has become the number two marketplace behind Amazon. Walmart. And, you know, they kind of, they're like a magician, you know, they show you one thing over here, but then I guess they're doing something else over here. And which is it, Walmart? We had Walmart here announce, got some nice press. And this is March 3rd, Walmart to invest $350 billion uh, into US manufacturing. Now, the article's a little bit uh, vague about what that really means. What are they going to be doing? $350 billion. It's over 10 years. You know, is this really one of those like, uh, what was it like Foxconn saying, we're going to invest 300, you know, whatever it was, hundreds of billions of dollars into factories in the US. And I guess, I don't know, were the factories ever built Foxconn? I don't know. Is this just one of those uh, vague, big 10 year, bunch of money commitments that never actually comes through. What is it that Walmart's really trying to do here? Is they're saying we're going to help create 750,000 jobs. The article talks about committing to source a wide range of American-made products, uh, including textiles and all these kinds of things, right? To source a wide range of American-made products. Okay. I would assume what that means is they're really just going to buy those products and then resell them. So 10 years, that means Walmart does over $500 billion a year in revenue. So is this saying that of $500 billion a year in revenue, so let's say they're buying every year, if they're buying over $300 billion, you know, they don't have more than uh, definitely, I got to look up what their gross margin is, but I can tell you this, it's not more than 40%. So if let's just say Walmart is buying over $300 billion worth of goods a year. It's probably more. I don't think their margins are that good. But anyway, they're buying over $300 billion worth of goods. Let's say, I don't know, 150, 200 billion of that's in the United States. So is this saying that they're going to allocate $35 billion of say $200 billion in spend to buy American-made products? I don't know what it is now, but if it's 10% or 15%, you're at probably 20, 30 billion dollars today. So are they saying, yeah, we're we're basically just gonna buy like five or ten billion dollars more a year of American-made products and then resell those? That's kind of what it seems like they're saying. Which is kind of just like a, a nothing burger of a commitment, right? It's just like a big fancy number. Kind of surprised the Washington Post picked this thing up. Like, what really are they announcing? They announced it at Tektronic, which makes Hoover and Oric and Dirt Devil, you know, vacuums. So they're, you know, they sell those vacuums. So to me, that's what it means. They're they're just gonna say, yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna try and resell more American products, $350 billion worth over 10 years. So I mean, those are those are puny numbers compared to what Walmart does annually in revenue and what they're buying annually. This, if anything, to me is kind of uh, more deflating than it is in, in optimistic or an enthusiastic state of affairs about 
how much support Walmart's going to give American-made manufacturers. So but they certainly tried to spin it really nice. We take our commitment to U.S. manufacturing seriously. We've seen some wonderful success stories. And we hope to contribute to U.S. manufacturing and job growth. Okay. All right, Walmart. And then, two weeks later, March 19th, Walmart opens marketplace to non-U.S. vendors in strategic shift. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. Keep in mind that in the first couple months of 2021, 75% of new sellers on Amazon are from China. So Walmart has huge demand on e-com. Walmart has just been in a race to sign up more sellers, right? To expand their product catalog. Doug McMillan, CEO, has, has made that point almost every earnings call to say, we need more sellers, we need more supply, we need more inventory, we need a bigger catalog, et cetera, right? Amazon we've, we've now, I don't know how many times, hundreds of times I've probably touched on this that, Amazon, not only do they take advantage of sellers, not only does their tech monopoly, you know, a vacuum of a, of a stranglehold on, uh, on, on so many different industries cause hardship to sellers, but they're, they are starving the United States of any ability to make a comeback in U.S. manufacturing. When 75% of the new sellers are from China. And Amazon, I've tried this. There is a way to buy products from small businesses on Amazon. It is not easy to do. You have to navigate there through kind of this like small store initiative. And then the search doesn't really work that well. You know, there's no button uh, when you're just browsing Amazon.com proper, right? On, on On the left side of the screen, when you can tab through all your criteria to filter, there's no button that says, made in America, or there's no button that says small business, presumably small business and made in America would be interchangeable, I guess. But that doesn't exist. And that's not by accident. Amazon's got like thousands of product managers. You don't think they've said, oh, well, we have a small shop, small business initiative. Why don't we just like put that button on the left panel? There's a reason that gets shut down. They want to support foreign manufacturers and foreign suppliers. That is why you're seeing Walmart take, you know, basically do this shift because Walmart, it doesn't say that there weren't foreign sellers selling on Walmart marketplace, but it is saying that they had to previously register as a U.S. entity to sell through the Walmart marketplace, right? So that gives you you know, it's it's a it's a hurdle. So if you're a foreign business, you want to sell, you have to have a U.S. entity. Now all that goes away, and and Walmart's saying, oh well, we're going to ensure quality control, and the vendors will still be carefully vetted both locally and by Walmart's global trust and safety team. Okay, sure. Um, to prevent the listing of unsavory items, <laughs> I mean it's it's laughable. I mean many things in in today's world are. Are laughable. I mean, all you can do is is laugh just because we're living in in the Looney Tunes. But you know, 
Walmart's trying to make you think that they're supporting U.S. manufacturing. Meanwhile, they're just talking out of the side of their mouth and then they get rid of their U.S. registration requirement to sell on the marketplace. You know, they give you a bogus uh, PR story about, oh, look, we're going to source $350 billion worth of products over 10 years from the United States. Oh, and yeah, we're going to get rid of that requirement that you have to even just register as a U.S. business to sell on the marketplace. Where do you think their true motivations lie? Very sad to see. It really is. And actually, with what this article goes deeper on is that they have been listing products as made in the USA when, you know, 80% of the product is imported, but then, you know, it's like assembled here, but it's really made abroad, but it, it's still labeled as made in the USA. Point is, if these marketplaces really wanted to support US made products, not saying that they can't have products internationally. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is if they really wanted to support it, you would surface it easily in the user experience, right? Give me a little button that says made in America. Give me a little button that says small business, right? Make it easy in the user experience for consumers to make the decision to say, I want to pay a little bit more money, probably for a little bit better quality. Yes, it's true. And I'd like to buy a made in America product. Give me the button. They don't even give you the button. Not surprised. Not surprised by much anymore, but it's, uh, it's still sad to see nonetheless. So let's double down on this topic and let's look at how Amazon takes advantage of its third-party sellers. Just a couple examples. Keep things fun. Um, this one, the, these guys, they had to sue or Amazon doesn't allow you to well, you can sue anyone in this country, but Amazon has arbitration clauses with all of their sellers, which means it goes to an arbitrator. It doesn't go through the courts. So these guys, this seller had to spend $200,000. And here's what happened. An online merchant spent 18 months and $200,000 in legal fees um, after Amazon booted them off and seized their inventory. Amazon suspended the seller's account after suspecting him of hawking counterfeit electronics. The company seized $80,000 in his account. So, you know, actual money in his account and 50,000 products stored in Amazon's warehouses. The merchant said, yeah, some of it might have been counterfeit. But you guys went too far, Amazon. You know, you didn't just penalize me. You didn't just kick me off of Amazon. But like you took my money and you took all my products, many of which were not counterfeit. And so he had to spend $200,000 uh, in, in legal fees and arbitration fees to go after Amazon. And ultimately, he won. And he was given a little less than a million dollars here in settlement. The mediator ruled that Amazon had ample reason to suspect the merchant and was within its rights to suspend his account. But he said the company went too far by ghosting the seller and withholding his products, and including many that weren't suspected of being counterfeit at all. Given the vast resources of Amazon, I would hope that in the future it would devote the resources necessary to treat all of its sellers with respect and some semblance of due process. So this is one of the two key complaints by producers in general across platforms. 
And this complaint is that if the platform takes action against the producer, could be a seller on Amazon, a driver on Uber, a content creator on YouTube, you have no recourse. You have no mechanism to even talk to anyone. You can lose your entire livelihood by the flick of a switch by some mid-level manager. Could be even be a contractor, doesn't even employed by the platform. And you can't do anything about it. That is one of the top two gripes of producers generally across every platform monopoly. The other one is that the platform raises prices, raises a take rate, raises their fees arbitrarily, and you also can, can do nothing about it. But this one is a great example about the marketplace monopoly being way too aggressive and really just you know dismissive, you know, not taking into account that these sellers, these producers are people, they have businesses, they have livelihoods, and they just make swift action with no recourse in sight. And then what do you got to do? You got to come out of pocket $200,000 to go after these guys. Meanwhile, your entire business is stalled. You know, your entire inventory is seized, right? Not only did this seller have to come out of pocket $200,000, but he had all that inventory, which now Amazon has seized. You know, you, many times you're buying the inventory on credit and then you're selling it, right? So you, you don't actually have cash if, if he's got a million dollars in inventory. He doesn't have you know, a million dollars of cash to buy that inventory outright, right? So there's so many things in here. Amazon knows all of this. There's so many things in here that just show how unnecessarily aggressive Amazon has gotten and continues to get with its sellers, even after being under the regulatory spotlight almost on a monthly basis at this point. So that's one example. Here is another example. This is a seller uh, called Peak Design who literally had their product ripped off, like to the stitching. And uh, they were selling on Amazon and they had to put a little video together to try and get some visibility on the wrongdoing that was done to, to them, to this, uh, this producer and manufacturer called Peak Design. Here's the video. Let's check it out. This is the Everyday Sling by Peak Design. And this is the Everyday Sling by Amazon Basics. It looks suspiciously like the Peak Design Everyday Sling, but you don't have to pay for all those needless bells and whistles, like years of research and development, recycled blue sign approved materials, a lifetime warranty, fairly paid factory workers, and total carbon neutrality. Instead, you just get a bag designed by the crack team at the Amazon Basics department. Yeah, keep coming that data. Okay, I'll get right on it, boss. We'll stop right there. That everyday sling, that's a hot seller. Let's basic this bad boy. Right on. Aluminum hardware? Uh, let's do plastic. Durable zippers? Uh, sounds pricey. Flex fold dividers? Let's do the floppy ones. Done. But what do we call it? I'm thinking the everyday sling. So if you're tired of supporting companies who innovate and just not willing to pay for responsibly made products, don't. The Everyday Sling by Peak Design and by Amazon Basics. Whichever one you buy, you'll get exactly what you paid for. So what'd you think? Which one are you gonna buy? Let's check this out. Everyday Sling, Amazon. Yeah, here it is, okay. So Peak Design, 
Uh, Amazon copied its bag. Hundred bucks for the everyday sling. Thirty three dollars for the Amazon Basics camera bag. That's what uh, they ended up going with. It was even called Everyday Sling until Peak Designs video. That's what I was doing. I was googling the Amazon Basics Everyday Sling, and and was only coming up with camera bags. So they've changed that because they you know because this came out a few weeks ago and got picked up by CNBC and a bunch of others. So we got to just keep highlighting it. And, you know, it goes back to the whole thesis of the show to try and help bring more parity. It goes back to the whole uh, raison d'etre of Applico. How do we help bring more parity? How do we help level the playing field against the big tech monopolies? Help at least normalize or, or equalize some of this just in- incredible dis- disparity and kind of vacuum of power which these tech monopolies just continue to uh, consolidate more and more. So a couple fun, couple fun examples there. Next fun topic. <laughs> I mean, you can read the subheader here. The government is too corrupt to regulate big tech. And why do I know that? We talked about regulatory capture on last episode. We talked about how, you know, Congress, you know, Congress is really just Everyone likes to say Congress is stupid. These people are smart, okay? They're not, they've tricked us all into thinking that they're dumb. They're smart and they're getting rich and they're taking, they're not bribes, but they're, everyone's getting paid and they're making their money. You can bet you that. Um, Just look at any of the studies of how much these people were worth going into Congress and then how much they're, you know, particularly on the ones, this is, this is a bipartisan thing, right? Once you're in there for multiple terms and then you say, wow, you know, I'm hanging out with all these really like successful, wealthy people. Well, you know, it'd be nice if I could have some of that wealth. I, I, I surely deserve it. I have done my service for this country. So yeah, you know, if, if maybe I, it's not going to my bank account, but maybe it's going to my brother's bank account, or maybe it's going to my, my, uh, my son's bank account or my nephew. Everyone has figured out in Congress how to cheat the system on both sides of the aisle. And to, for one second, believe that, that these Congress men and women, when they berate these tech CEOs and they get their 15 little snippet to go raise money on social media with, that do they actually believe? And will they actually see through the kind of change which they get all us, you know, commoners, our citizens, so excited about getting put into place. Don't lose too much sleep on it, gang. We all know that when the final bill, if there is any bill, is actually being written, that the lobbyists, which are a myriad and are paid handsomely by these tech monopolies, are going to get their little words into those thousand page long bills and it's going to dilute whatever kind of real um teeth needs to happen i just wouldn't lose any sleep i wouldn't get your hopes uh, up over having real change come about from congress okay that's my point there really it's up to uh private enterprise if anything actually try and do something now you could say well alex you know why are you such a skeptic like why don't you perk up a little bit alex 
Well, I got an example for you. This is Politico writing about what happened during the Obama administration. So this is not a partisan thing by any means. And here they say how Washington fumbled the future. A decade ago, a surging Silicon Valley giant was making plans to dominate the internet. Given a chance to stop it, regulators chosen by Barack Obama misread the evidence in front of their eyes. They didn't misread it accidentally. That's kind of the whole point of the story. So Politico obtained 312 pages of confidential internal memos, revealed that the FTC lawyers in economics reveals what the lawyers and economic experts were thinking, including assumptions that were contradictory at the time, and many that turned out to be incorrect about the internet's future. Google's efforts to dominate it and the harm its rivals said they were suffering from the company's actions. The memos show that at a crucial moment when Washington's regulators might have had a chance to stem the growth of tech's biggest giants, preventing a handful of trillion-dollar corporations from dominating a rising share of the economy, they misread the evidence in front of them and left much of the digital future in Google's hands. Keyword here is air quotes around misread. The documents also add doubts to whether Washington is any more capable today of reining in the tech industry's titans despite efforts by new generations of antitrust enforcers to turn up the heat on Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon. Short answer is, there's nothing different. If anything, it's worse off. Even with Lena Khan at the head of it, and on the last episode I talked about what my concerns are with Lena Khan, even though she is, in a good way, um, against the tech monopoly power that they have amassed and wants to do something about it, I just fear that her theory on how to execute against it, which is really what it all comes down to, execution, is misguided. The other part of this, um, I forget what newsletter sent me this, but basically, if you read through this whole article, it basically says Google helped get Obama reelected and then therefore the FTC you know, looked the other way on suing Google. So I don't know if that's the case or not. All I know is these are smart people, whether it's in Congress, they're smart, they're just corrupt. And the smart people inside of these agencies. They're smart. Not saying the people in the agencies are corrupt. There's corruption everywhere, though. But my point here is that there are much larger forces at work when it comes to antitrust, big tech regulation than here's what the committee inside the FTC thinks versus what actually gets done. Just a lot of things at play. And I don't think we can look at the scenario just on the face of it to say, oh, this is wrongdoing. Now something should be done about it. Um, We would be fools to just continue to put hope in that path. We got to just, you know, take matters into our own hands and uh, and really can't expect much, if anything, from government. To end on a positive note, that is why I love this man, Elon Musk. I've talked about SpaceX and Starlink. And so here's what's going on with Starlink. So Starlink is SpaceX's kind of satellite um, satellite internet provider. So they have a bunch of these Starlink satellites which sit in low orbit. And they have uh, thousands of these things now orbiting the Earth. You've probably seen <clears throat> videos of Starlink satellites in orbit. Let me see if I can pull up a cool video here. You can see that? So those are the Starlink 
satellite system, not aliens, not UFOs, internet providers. So cool. So, so cool. He's just doing this on the side. Oh, let's launch an internet company on the side. Okay. Great idea, Elon. And then he does it. And then he does it. That's the key part of this. So what is so interesting, though, about this is not only has Starlink launched service in the United States, um, they've already been trialing that. We've covered that on the show. Um, SpaceX now has 1,200 Starlink satellites in orbit. And um, da, 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 da. the company is expanding the coverage for its ongoing beta test of the brand broadband internet service those satellites provide. The company originally limited the beta test to the northern tier of the continental United States, later expanding it to include southern Canada and parts of now the United Kingdom. So Starlink is now in the UK. Not only is it in the UK, it's moving to the rest of England, to Scotland and Wales, and now it's also starting in Western Germany and New Zealand with plans to expand in both countries in the coming weeks. So the thing that would be so great from all of this, not only, and, and the way they frame this internet is it's, it's kind of funny. You know, they're not saying that this is a viable alternative to if you've got, you know, um, the, the piped in internet infrastructure coming in, uh, you know, from one of these major uh, players. This is really for those areas where, you know, satellite, like, like uh, direct TV type customers, right? Where they just don't have fast internet. They're in a very rural area. If you look at some of the areas that they've rolled this out, like Southern Island of New Zealand, right? These are very rural areas. The infrastructure isn't very good. They have been touting speeds of 50 to 150 megabits per second, which honestly is not that bad. Um, some in online forums, this article says some people report up to 300 megabits per second. But the point is you can have intermittent outages you know it's not always there working perfectly it could come and go because satellites uh, orbiting the earth you know stuff happens and this is still in a beta format alpha format in some of these newer countries that are coming online but here's the really cool thing you know it's so cool and we also know that starlink has been working with the department of defense unlike some of the tech monopolies that have been reticent to work with certain units within the Department of Defense, which is not okay. But we know that Elon has a very close relationship with working with the government, whether it's NASA, the Department of Energy as it relates to Tesla and other organizations. Um, but the really cool thing from a military and just from a kind of, um, you know, US-China perspective is what China has invested in so heavily, and we've covered it a bunch, is the Great Firewall, Right. They have such strong infrastructure to control what comes in and what goes out, what happens inside of the country as it relates to the internet. And now this is like the piercing of the veil. This is, you know, that spear that just goes right through all of that. You got satellites. How do you, pre how do you prevent that internet from getting into China? Now, you do need a receiver device. It doesn't just magically, like you have got a cell phone or 
you got Wi-Fi and boom, you connect to a Starlink. So there is a little bit of hardware. That's not very difficult. You know, if there's a will, there's a way kind of thing. So the bubble that is China, both from a monetary standpoint, we've talked about how China, we talk about the United States printing money. Um, we've also talked about, if you think the United States is printing money, China's printing probably three or four times the amount of money. We talk about China's GDP growth and their numbers, and you can't believe one iota of their data, whether it's their GDP numbers, their debt numbers, their COVID numbers, for sure can't believe those things. You just can't really believe anything that China tells you. And that also applies for people living inside of China, where everything they read is either uh, regulated, it's monitored, and we've talked about the 50 Cent Army, where they're actively creating content to convince you of a certain opinion, right? Of a certain belief that it might be commonly held or allegedly commonly held. And they're literally paying millions of people. We're going to have General Spaulding on the show in a few weeks who wrote a book called Stealth War. And, and one of the things we're going to talk about is all this stuff China is doing just to influence opinion both internally and abroad. This is the perfect mechanism to pierce that, that thought police bubble, which China has invested so heavily in. Now, obviously, Elon is not touting this um, as, a, as a China internet bubble popper. That's essentially what it could be. And I, and I know that someone, either at SpaceX or in the government or both, is also thinking about how we could um, help liberate and just provide freedom of information. Pretty good thing. Harder to come by in the United States these days even. But basically impossible to come by in China. It'd be great if we could provide a little bit of that freedom of information elsewhere to people, not just in China, but elsewhere in other countries that would like to have a little bit of free information, free access to you know information that isn't constantly monitored and, and, and force-fed to you. Last, last, last note of today is spoke about just madness in the stock market. Another call that um, we made correctly is this one. Another just last little tangent on this. I mean, is look at CBS Viacom stock here. It's, it's a 40 plus billion dollar company. And it's almost at $70 a share. Look at this thing in November. It's $28. Like, what, what changed in this company in the past three months as to, as to why it should 2.5x? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? So the call there was that Viacom stock made absolutely no sense. Although... Netflix, I do think, has problems because they're not a platform business, as we've covered on the show. It aired on March 2nd. And here is Viacom stock. So that was actually that was actually back here when I was talking about it. That was back to like 70 bucks a share. Then it went up to a hundred bucks a share. And now it is down to 46. Still up from where it was in the, you know basically roughly 30 bucks a share, um, mid twenties, high twenties. You know what I, another topic I'm going to do is the internet bubble, right? At the end of the nineties, going into the early two thousands, 
what you're seeing today is these are little flare-ups, right? A myriad of just market inconsistencies. And what it's saying to you, no, not any single moment is going to tell you the story. But if you take a step back and you say, well, <laughs> do the markets make sense? You would say, uh, no, they absolutely don't make sense. And I can't tell you when the correction is going to come and what it's going to look like and what is going to be that, that kind of catalyst, right, that, that starts to unravel. Um, this, it's not, it's beyond froth at this point um, in the market. But what I can tell you is these are flare ups. These are signals, right? That the market is not acting efficiently, inefficient markets. And there needs to be, and there will be a correction. Can't tell you when, and I can't tell you what's going to set it into motion, but I can tell you this stuff does not make sense. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I will talk to you soon.